Hey, entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web host. And that's where Hostgator comes in. Hostgator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, Hostgator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash Hostgator today and let your online journey begin. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin Schmidt, you have some exciting news to announce. That's true. What is that news? Uh, oh, about the book. I thought this was well, the what other. other. What other exciting news oh. do we have? Oh, I thought this was about me not having to sit on that inflatable donut anymore. <laughs> no, no, I, uh, I, I pitched uh, book eleven, and uh, it was approved. I signed a contract a couple days ago, which is probably like a month ago by the time people hear this, but. But yeah, so it's it's out there. It's going to be another crime story about murder and mayhem and uh, prostitution and all the fun things we like to talk about in 1959 and 1960. So, and if I re- if I read Facebook correctly, is it? Spread across multiple states it or is. something like that? It is, yeah. So this is actually probably my biggest book as far as like the ground covered. It's pretty tight, like I said. It's 59, 1960, so it's like a one-year time period. But we're going to, well, Milwaukee, but also Upper Michigan, Illinois, Iowa, and Indiana. So we're doing like a whole chunk of the Midwest. So Stay tuned for that. It that's probably not going to come out until the end of the year. Uh, I would I would guess the beginning of oh, next year. My deadline is September, so unless they've got a really fast turnaround, <laughs> it's probably going to be early next year. Okay, cool. All right. Well, we all look forward to seeing that, and we'll let everybody know when it does actually release. Right? Oh heck yeah! All right. So you got a mafia story for us? I do. All right. What are we talking about? We're going to talk about a bankruptcy scam. Nice. There are no murders in this episode. Oh, God. You just lost half the listeners, I know. No no murders here. Um, Originally, this was probably like the most convoluted story imaginable, but I boiled it down. I removed a whole bunch of names that, you know, they're probably important, but it's just going to be easier not to have them. them in here. Because <laughs> it's like, why have eight names when you can have four? It's just to keep things simple. So um, if people want to read more, I mean, they can go on the website, MilwaukeeMafia.com, and they can see the whole unedited version. But this is going to be kind of the, the boiled down version. Hopefully, it's still somewhat clear. Are you ready? I am ready. I'm interested to see how the mafia makes money off of bankruptcies. All right. So we are in 1958, Okay. the summer of 1958. Detroit mobster Sam Finazzo, or Finazzo, something like that, he calls Milwaukee's Citywide Amusement Company. The Citywide Amusement Company is owned by Mafia boss Frank Balistrieri. 
Although he's not quite the boss yet at this point, but he's a pretty high-ranking guy. What is the, what did you say it was? The Milwaukee Amusement Company? The Citywide right. Amusement, Amusement Company. company. Is, so it, it's coin-operated machines okay. like jukeboxes, things like that. That makes total sense. Yeah. Bellastri and Finazzo knew each other because they had previously promoted boxing matches. So they'd work together from that. But this time, Finazzo was looking for some inexpensive or preferably free goods that he could feature in his store, the Rex Bargain Store. He had a he had a secondhand shop in Detroit. Okay. All right. So they work out some kind of a deal. And here we go. Finazzo gets two Detroit guys, a man named James Bishop and Frank Verville, uh, to head to Milwaukee so they can purchase this business that's been picked out for them. The business is Scanlon's Radio and Music on West Wisconsin Avenue. The owner, Roy Scanlon, had just died from diabetes. So his store was up for sale. They came in, they talked to his wife, widow, whatever, and they said, yeah, we'd like to purchase it. They used fake names. They said, we're James Kelly and Frank Edwards. <laughs> and she's like, that's cool. And they said, how about this? We pay you one third now and we'll pay you two thirds as we sell off the stock. And she says, sounds great. She runs a credit check on them. Everything comes back clean. It comes back clean because they're using fake names. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm surprised that it didn't say like, well, these names don't exist in our system. No, apparently in the 50s, if you just made up a name, it would say nothing found. <laughs> That's for good. <laughs> now, James Bishop actually had a record of various thefts, worthless checks, and uh, he was known for using false names. He had spent time in a Michigan prison, but none of this would come up. One employee stayed on for about two weeks before she left because things seemed very fishy to her. <laughs> they also started renting a second storage space in West Dallas where they would bring items in and then ship them out as fast as they came in. Here's what they did. They sent out thousands and thousands of postcards saying, Hello again from Scanlands. We're looking to buy some stuff. And they'd send it out to all the wholesalers that they could come up with. And they said, check us out. We've got excellent credit. And so they sent out these postcards. The places would look them up. And of course, they did have excellent credit because they, they were using fake names. <laughs> well, no, but, it, but not under their names, under the Scanlon's name. Oh, okay. Because Scanlon's had been in business for 20 years at this point. So they had an excellent record. So the businesses are like, sure. And they start sending just thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of merchandise. And they're like, pay us, uh, you know, in, in a month or two or six months, whatever. And the guys are getting the stuff and they're like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Joke's on you. They get a hold of a guy named Jack Shubo. Jack Shubo brings in his brother-in-law. And between the two of them, they start contacting secondhand stores in Detroit and Cleveland. So as soon as these things are coming into Milwaukee, they're turning around and they're going to get shipped right back out to Cleveland in Detroit. So these things are going right back out. Now, the deal is supposed to be these guys who are taking it in Cleveland and Detroit, they're buying it for a slightly higher amount than what they're getting it for wholesale. So they're supposed to be making some money off of this deal, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't work out quite like that. In Detroit, they're now getting so much inventory coming in from Milwaukee that they have to start renting out storage space there and a guy from milwaukee goes to 
Detroit to kind of oversee the stuff getting shipped in. And they turn around and they're selling it out of Detroit till we get another guy who's going to bring it into Canada. Okay. This is very, it's going to be a very tough story to follow kind of here. But as long as you understand the things are getting repeatedly bought by new people down the line. Well, on October 10th, so this is a couple months after they purchased the store, they're forced into involuntary bankruptcy in Milwaukee. Okay. Because after several months, they keep ordering all this stuff, but they're not paying for it. They're not paying their bills. They're not paying for anything. So they're forced into involuntary bankruptcy. James Bishop, Frank Verville, run away. They're like, well, you don't want to be caught yeah. with this. <laughs> On his way out of town, Bishop stops at Casanova Gun Shop, buys himself a shotgun with a bad check. Nice. <laughs> of but course. They, <laughs> but they don't know that yet. One of the creditors gets suspicious of the bankruptcy and hires a private eye. The private eye sees the merchandise being loaded up from a trailer at the second warehouse location that they had, follows it to the state line. The truck driver then goes across the state line, spends a night in Chicago, continues under Detroit. At Detroit, the truck driver pulls into a shell station. A second truck backs up to this truck. They unload the truck, load it into the second truck, and the second truck drives up. So the guy who picked up the stuff in Milwaukee doesn't even know where it's going because he's at He's getting handing it off to a second guy at a gas station. Are they doing that as a way to kind of per- protect? I mean, I guess so that guy is, is that the purpose is to so that guy does not know where it's going, right? Okay, the guys in Milwaukee know where it's going, the guys in Detroit know where it's going, but they don't want the truck driver to know where it's going. So, this is so that anybody outside of the scam doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And none of the guys in the scam are truck drivers, so they have to hire a truck driver. And they don't want him to, you know, rat them out. Okay, so now we've got the Canadian guy who is bringing stuff over from Detroit into Canada. And for people who don't know, Detroit shares a border with Canada. So it's not really that big of a deal. You cross the bridge and you're in a city called Windsor, which is where this guy was bringing the stuff. Well, at this point, the guy bringing it into Canada gets stopped and spoken to by a man named Tony Thomas, whose nickname is Little Shrieky. And I don't know what that <laughs> means, but that's his nickname, Little Shrieky. And Little Shrieky says, hey, I want in on that deal. Where are you getting that stuff from? So the, the, the Canadian guy brings him to the warehouse where all the stuff is. And then he says, all right, thanks. We'll take it from here. <laughs> now, if you haven't guessed quite at this point, Tony Thomas works... For Sam Finazzo, the original Detroit guy. Okay. So from this stuff getting shipped out of the Milwaukee store to the Detroit store, put in the warehouse, now they're going to take it out of the warehouse and bring it back to Sam Finazzo. And along this way, it's gone through multiple businesses, multiple warehouses, some of them under fake names, some of them declaring bankruptcy. So it's really hard to track the merchandise as it goes. Okay. So Tony... Tony takes over, Little Shrieky takes over, and he goes, don't mess with me, man. I did time for a double murder, which is which is not true. He did time for one murder. So, But you always got to talk it up a little bit. You got to talk it know. up a little bit, yeah. yeah. The Detroit guy doesn't know about this scam, or at least he doesn't know about the entire scam. He knew enough to buy stuff from Milwaukee, but I don't think he knew about the part where they were going to come in and take it. So he gets told by the Canadian guy that... Canadian guy's like, I just got hijacked. And the Detroit guy says, you should tell those guys 
that the FBI knows that this merchandise is bad, so you can scare them away and we can get that merchandise back. <laughs> well, that didn't that didn't work out. To clear clarify this, yeah, the only, yeah, uh, definitely the, ask me is, questions because, like I said, it's, is it's the very only convoluted. reason that the merchandise is going to can it because inevitably they want this merchandise to end up in their store in Detroit. Right? It, it ends up in Detroit. Okay, it ends up some some of it went into Canada, but. But just like the first shipment that the guy brought over, when, after they stopped him, they they took the rest of it. So why? What was the purpose for putting bringing it into Canada? There was no purpose, just to sell it off. So they were just they just had so much of it that they must have known somebody that owned a shop in in Canada, and they're like, yeah. "You want to take some of so this?" So the guy in Det- so the guy in Detroit is Jack Shubo, and Jack Shubo, as far as I know, does not work for the mob. Okay. He's just a middleman guy. So he's trying to get rid of some of this. He sells it to the Canadian guy, and the Canadian guy brings it over. That part is probably all legitimate. But the Detroit mob knows what's up. So when they figure out which warehouse it got sent to in Detroit, they knew it went from Milwaukee to Detroit. So once they figured out where it ended up in Detroit, then they come in and they <laughs> say, hey, okay, we're going to take this stuff from here. Huh. Weird. Yeah. I know. It's said so it's going to be complicated, and I'm I'm removing a lot of the names to make this less complicated because there's so many more steps in here. But we're just gonna just gonna leave that all out. By this point in time, the FBI get involved because they kind of know something was up with the bankruptcy. They're like, that was a pretty shady thing. And then when you go into involuntary bankruptcy, it gets handed over to what's called a receiver, and the receiver kind of handles it from there. Well, the receiver goes to the store, and of course, the store is empty. So the FBI gets told about all this, and they're like, okay, you got thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of merchandise. You didn't pay anybody, and it's not in the store. Where is it? Where is it? And the guy fled town, so they, they can't even ask the guy. They're like, something is definitely wrong here. So they're investigating under the idea that at this point, it's basically an interstate theft, that somebody had taken it and left the state with it. Which is true. Which is true. So... So they kind of figure this out and they follow it along. They get enough pieces of it that they're able to find the uh, warehouse in Detroit. And they go there and they talk to Tony Thomas, Little Shrieky. And Tony Thomas says, well, looky what I have here. And he pulls out of his pocket a handwritten receipt saying that he had purchased the stuff off the Canadian guy. (laughs) So he's like, look... All this stuff you see, I own this fair and square. I bought it off the Canadian guy. Where he got it from, I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, not much they can do about it at that point. So so <laughs> where, did they do this with the – did the Canadian guy legitimately give him a, like a fake receipt making it no. look like he purchased it? They just made this up and kind of pushed it off onto the Canadian guy? Yeah. Essentially? Yeah. Okay. They basically told him, you know, just go along with it because – I did time for double murder. Don't don't mess with me. All right. So the FBI interviews Jack Shubo, who is the Detroit guy who I don't think is the mob is mob connected. And he kind of explains, he goes, you know, I don't know what's up. I got a call from Milwaukee and I was told if I went to Milwaukee and I could find buyers for the stuff, they'd give me a cut of the profits. That's all I did. I brought it to Detroit. And from there, I, I I sold some of it to Cleveland. I sold some of it to this Canadian guy. I'm just here in the middle. I don't know what's up. I've heard through the grapevine that the Canadian guy got held up, but I don't know. I wasn't there. 
So he's like trying to back out of this. So do you think Jack Shubo, was he completely above board? Or did he fully know that he was working with the mafia and something shady was going on? I don't know if he knew it was the mafia, but I think... I think he probably knew something wasn't right. He probably turned a blind eye like, like this almost seems too good to be true, but right. why am I going to pass up all this good inventory, I guess? Right. And here's where Jack Shubok gets flaky. So now the FBI continues to look into this. Okay, who who rented out the space, the warehouse space where all this stuff was stored? And the answer is Jack Shubo. But Jack Shubo doesn't want them to know that because then – he would have a warehouse full of stolen oh, goods. Right. So he calls up the property manager and he says, hey, I want you to write out a fake receipt. Yeah. <laughs> write out a fake receipt saying that it was rented by a guy named Bob Gunther, who does not exist. <laughs> There's no Bob Gunther. It was rented by a guy, a guy named Bob Gunther. And if anybody asks, you show them that receipt. And the property manager is like, okay, which of course he thinks that's weird, but he's going to do it. Jack Shubo tells him because Jack's basically he, his boss. And sure enough, that same afternoon, the FBI shows up at the rental place and says, hey, who rented out this warehouse space? And the guy's like, well, wouldn't you know, I happen to have this receipt in my pocket. <laughs> right now. Yeah. And they thought that was pretty weird that he carried it on him. <laughs> but they took it, they made a copy, and they left. Now, at this point, things start going backwards. The Canadian guy was able to sell off his first shipment into Canada before he got kind of hijacked. The guy he sold it to in Canada now thinks something is fishy. And he says, I, I want to give you this stuff back. I'll give you the stuff back, back. Give me the money back. <laughs> and the Canadian guy's like, I can't. I don't have the money anymore. I can't do any of this. He doesn't really want to let him know quite the situation. But he's like, I can't. I can't do it. So now the, the second, well, there's a second Canadian guy. But he's not important. But the point is he has the merchandise now. and He's kind of stuck with okay, it. Then. But he's in Canada, so it's whatever. That's The FBI doesn't care about that. Yeah. It's in Canada. <laughs> got it out of the country. Uh, they started looking into the stuff that got sent to Cleveland. And the guy who got it in Cleveland is a guy named Irving Leiterman. And Irving Leiterman buys it and sells it from his first company, which is ENA, to a second company called Community Furniture. He owns both, but by selling it from one to the other... He creates another paper trail where it's like, look, I legitimately bought, bought this, this stuff. <laughs> so he's creating this stuff. And he even says, he's like, I bought it legit. He goes, he goes, here, I even have the bills and stuff. He goes, I got a bill for 3500 I thought that was unfair. So I paid them 3000 <laughs> He goes, but I paid, but I paid. So he's like, it was real. Wouldn't it be really easy to track the fact that he owned, like, yes, you you bought it legitimately, but you bought it from a company you own. Right. Like, and wouldn't they just go back to the previous company, him, and be like, well, okay, where did your other company get oh, it from? Oh, right. Well, they tried to give him crap for that. They're like, you own both companies. And not only that, these two companies he owns in Cleveland, like, they're in attached buildings. <laughs> Like, it's not like they're even in different cities, different parts of it's town. Fine. Like, you can walk through a door and you're in the other company. company. So, they're like, this is all you did was move stuff like 10 feet. <laughs> but, you know, he has a receipt. So, whatever. And that actually worked. So far, yes. Yeah. Okay. They're going to eventually get him. My- all right. So, finally, months later, James Bishop, the original guy from Milwaukee, running the, the fake name, fake store, all this. He's arrested in California at a motel. He's got a new wife 
who he married while he was on the run. In the hotel room, motel room, whatever, they find a locked briefcase, which he says contains personal papers. But they don't quite believe this. They crack it open and they find that it contains marijuana and a glass jar of narcotics. Don't know what a glass (laughs) jar of narcotics is, but whatever. So they bring him to the jail and they hold him there. The Canadian guy now gets an attorney and the attorney contacts the FBI and they say, our guy, he can't really work with you anymore, FBI. He's had a mental breakdown. Uh, He collapsed. He was completely out of it for four hours. We had to send him to the hospital because he's going through depression. He's having some real problems now. He goes, he doesn't know what to do. He's got the mob on one side, the FBI on the other. He can't handle it. So so he's already got an attorney trying to get him out of the whole situation. Frank Verville, the second original guy, uh, gets caught in Detroit. Now the list of creditors starts coming in. And the first... Report is 142 pages long, 100 or 1,300 different companies that they bought stuff from. Holy cow! With the debt as high as five hundred thousand dollars. Within a couple of days, the debt is up to seven hundred thousand dollars, and this is in 1950s money. So, did you do the conversion? I did Just, not do duh. the did not do the conversion, but I mean, this is you know in the low millions probably. Yeah. So a lot of merchandise was bought and never paid for. I'm I'm amazed that even with this company's amazing credit, that they were able to purchase so much stuff. That's what happens if you go to that many different places. Yeah, I suppose, because they'll just all give you a little credit line and, yeah. and you just max out that credit line. Yeah, $100 here, $100 there. Nobody yeah. notices. That's true. Yeah. Okay, so James Bishop, the original guy again. He's temporarily free from jail after his attorney postponed. His attorney, perhaps not coincidentally, is Dominic Frenzy, who is the attorney for the Milwaukee Mafia. So, could be a coincidence. Might not be. Don't know. I mean, he's, he's a defense attorney. He's represented many people. But could be. In a, in a scenario like this, so I, I assume the Milwaukee Mafia, for setting this all up for them, was oh. getting a cut of everything that was going on. I don't know that, but that's certainly possible. That's reasonable to assume. Yeah. Well, within a couple of days, he has to appear at a bankruptcy hearing, but he refuses to answer any questions at the bankruptcy hearing because he's also now involved in a criminal matter with all the stolen goods. So he's like, if I say anything at this bankruptcy trial, you're going to use it against me at at my theft trial. He goes, so I can't talk. So the bankruptcy matter kind of gets put on hold for a while. So there's like, we're not even going to deal with this because he's got a legitimate point. At this point, Tony Thomas, little shrieky, voluntarily goes to the FBI and he goes, I want to tell you the full story here. I want to tell you what's up. He goes, I don't know what that Canadian guy is telling you. He's like, all I know is my boss asked me to move some merchandise we bought it fair and square. We got the receipt. Everything is good. So he's like still continuing on with this story. He's like, don't listen to that Canadian guy. He's crazy. But the fact that this this guy, a known mob guy who did time for murder, is like actively going <laughs> to the FBI office, like being like, really? I've got the receipts. We're good. <laughs> Bold move there. FBI then talks to his boss, Sam Finazzo, the guy who originally set all this up. And he says... I ain't telling you guys anything I don't want you to know. And yes, in the FBI report, it says use guys. (laughs) They were thorough. Yeah. I don't know if that's really how he talked, but that's how they wrote it. Use guys. 
He said, as far as he was concerned, his purchase was a legitimate one. He said, yeah, there was a $5,000 down payment. Look, I've got the receipts. <laughs> Everything is good. So he goes, he goes, the only thing that there was an issue with is he goes, some of it we were going to sell into Canada, but I backed out of that part of the deal because I didn't want to pay the customs. He goes, so if anyone's giving you crap, he goes, that was because I didn't want to pay customs. He goes, it wasn't that the sale wasn't legit. I just backed out of the Canadian part of the deal, which I don't even know what he's referring to here. If he's just trying to make up a story, whatever. The original two guys, Bishop and Verville, plead not guilty to the charges of transporting stolen goods. At this point, the guy in Cleveland, Irving Leiterman, is arrested for his role in all of this, and his company is forced into bankruptcy. Bishop pleads not guilty to 16 charges of using Scanlon's as a front for receiving credit and then shipping the merchandise out of state. But both Bishop and Verville enter a plea of guilty to a charge of mail fraud. The, what was the mail fraud? Of whatever these postcards were that they were sending oh. out, apparently was not okay to do what they what I don't know the details of it, but they misrepresented themselves, oh. basically. The prosecutor asked the judge to ignore the other charges against Bishop and Verville in exchange for their testimony. So all these other theft charges and whatever, let's just drop those. They've pled guilty to mail fraud, and they're going to cooperate with us. The judge is like, that's cool. So at this point now, instead of the original guys running the scam going on trial, who goes on trial is two guys in Detroit and the guy in Cleveland who bought the merchandise. Wow, they really played this well, didn't they? Yeah. Because none of those people were associated with the mafia at all, right. as far as we know. Correct. They were just middlemen. Correct. Oh, they played this right. Yeah. <laughs> Bishop testifies and he says, you know, Milwaukee's a friendly town. Everybody knows that. We bought these goods. We shipped them to Cleveland. He goes, we were paid a little bit of money for that. We shipped 22 loads to Detroit. We never saw a penny of that. Verville testifies. And now they're saying, these two guys, they're saying, he goes, what we did wasn't a scam. We're just really bad businessmen. <laughs> these are the two original, the two original, original guys. Detroit guys. Yeah. We brought all this stuff in. We met, we had deals with these other guys in Cleveland and Detroit to take the stuff. It's not our fault that they didn't pay us. If they would have paid us, we would have paid, paid the original is. companies. <laughs> so they're now claiming that. You know, it just didn't, it wasn't a fast enough turnaround. It wasn't a scam at all. Well, these other guys are now on trial for that. Uh, while during the trial, Irving Leiterman, the guy from Cleveland, he goes out in the hallway and he talks to one of the FBI agents. He goes, This is a frame. He goes, I never even saw these guys testifying <laughs> against me in my life. He said, I actually ended up losing money on all this merchandise. Because every time the FBI came sniffing around, I had to move it. So I had to keep paying for transportation and storage fees. He goes, <laughs> I didn't make any money off of this deal. So he's like, you're going after the wrong guys here. But they were moving it? I mean, isn't that in, in essentially emitting guilt? Kind of, yeah. I mean, they obviously must have – why else would you move it if you unless you thought it was hot merchandise? Yeah, yeah. It's weird. And at the end of the trial, the jury found – Jack Shubo, Gene Gillis, who was another guy in Detroit, and Irving Leiterman, all guilty of dealing in these stolen goods. <laughs> Things then get weird again. An attorney comes forward and says, I have an affidavit saying that the prosecutor was going to give everybody probation 
in exchange for testimony. And he goes, well, that didn't happen. You guys sent some of these guys away for being guilty, and that's fine. But my guys, Bishop and Verville, they pled guilty, they testified, and you still are giving them some jail time, even though we had this deal with the prosecutor for probation. And they ended up each getting, those two guys even who pled guilty and testified, they ended up getting about three years. Mm-hmm. So they still got something for the mail fraud. But still not the end of the story. I know. It's messy. <laughs> they moved, the Bishop and Verville moved for a reduction of sentence. They said, we don't want to plead guilty anymore. We want to withdraw our plea of guilty. They said, we had an agreement with the prosecutor. The prosecutor didn't follow through. And if they didn't follow through on their end, we're backing out on our end. We're not pleading guilty anymore. This is, We're taking it back. Then Shubo, Gillis, and Leiterman appealed. They said, well, we need a new trial as well because the testimony used against us was fake. They only testified what they testified because they were getting a deal to testify. <laughs> so they were given a new hearing. The defense filed that motion, and it was successful. The judge is like, you're right. At the very least, you should have known the guys testifying against you had a deal worked out. He ends up drop the judge ends up dropping the charges completely against Leiterman, Gillis, and Shuba. So the three guys who received the merchandise, they're gone. They're no longer convicted. They're, okay. They're free and clear. Back to back to the original two guys. They're granted a new trial. Okay. Because now they said they got a bad deal because their their secret deal didn't work. So they're like, this is bad. Judge agreed. They get a new trial as well. And they're going to get off, aren't they? It's now, after all this is going through, it's now about three years since they originally arrested. This is how long the, the, wow. the, 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 it takes to get through court. And the prosecutor ends up meeting with the FBI and meeting with everybody else. He's like, I don't even know if we can prosecute this anymore. <laughs> He's like, these other three guys got let go. I don't know if we're going to be able to get them to testify. The FBI agents all... You know, they don't, they're not going to remember everything mm-hmm. anymore. This is getting to be kind of old, but it's like, well, I guess we'll try to move it forward. So they, they sent it up to the assistant attorney general, second highest guy in the country, ask his opinion. And he's like, I, I mean, I guess we still got to move with it, right? In the meantime, these guys are filing motions. They're like, you're violating our right to a speedy trial. <laughs> like, we've been waiting almost three years here to go on trial. Like, you can't do that. It's not okay. But finally, they did get to go back to trial. And the prosecution said that they, Verville and Bishop ran a sophisticated scheme. Attorney Dominic Frenzy is, again, the defense. And he argues, James Bishop, you know, he's a poor businessman. He's not a criminal. There was no intention to defraud anybody. Frank Verville says... The suppliers, they sent the goods willingly. We didn't do anything fraudulent. We didn't trick them out of it. They sent us the goods. He claimed that everybody was going to get paid, but the buyers in Detroit and Cleveland just did not pay fast enough. Well, the jury didn't fall for this story, and after two hours, they were convicted. Verville gets sentenced to four years in prison and fined $5,000. Bishop, for some reason, only gets five years probation and is fined $1,000. Why the one guy gets four years in prison and the other guy gets, gets probation, I don't know. It almost sounds like they gave, what was it, Bishop, the, a deal. Yeah. Uh, to maybe he, behind the books or something, testified to get, get the other guy? or I don't know. Anyway, when all is said and done, it ends up taking many, many years, and the two original guys do get some, get some jail time. But a very important thing to note 
in all the story. Ignore all the details of this and all all the confusing ins and outs and all the whatever. The stuff got shipped from Milwaukee to Detroit and Cleveland. The guys who received it ended up not getting in trouble, although they had to go through a lot of hoops and whatever. And the mob guys in Detroit who held them up never end up getting arrested at all. So they show a receipt saying they bought it. They walk off with their merchandise and they never get arrested for it. So throughout all of this legal mess, the scam actually works. They didn't get all of the merchandise though, right? Because they lost some of it to to Some of it went to Canada. Some of it probably ended up in Cleveland. But basically the idea worked. The idea of getting these two guys to front the store and ship it over to Detroit worked. And I mean, it's pretty brilliant <laughs> if you think about it. Uh-huh. And and it seems like it seems like they really. I mean, they didn't just jump into this. No, they, they had a pretty sophisticated plan of how they were going to do this, which makes me think they've done this in other places too, probably. And right. that would be really interesting to to research and see if you could find something. Right. Well, and and I don't have specifics, but they did. While they were investigating it, they they did come up with a bunch of other things that they thought were suspicious because there are, and and we'll have things like this in the future, but there are secondhand stores and most of them are legit, but sometimes secondhand stores are a really good way to get rid of stolen merchandise. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about quite on this scale, but it, it is actually a fairly common way to do it yeah i would imagine and the thing that blows my mind about this is that it was a really good scheme but the problem was was why did they blow it up so much they could have probably done you know like a tenth of the inventory Mm -hmm. gone away scot-free and nobody would even ever question anything like the the fbi would have never even went after it because it would have been such a small amount that that's possible you know that's possible yeah and it's like but i guess you but in they must have went in because how long did they order in milwaukee was it was only like three months right before they pretty much declare bankruptcy on that business uh something like that it was like they started ordering in like july and the bankruptcy was declared in october so whatever that comes out to and that's three three or four months yeah. yeah so um so when you when you started this story out, you talked about you said that the guys approached uh, Frank Balistrieri, I believe, and said, "We're looking for inventory for yeah. our own store." Yeah, but that wasn't true. They didn't really have a store. They no, just no, had a couple. That's, pro- no, that's true. Okay, so once they when they got away with when they went and said, "Oh yeah, we bought this," and the FBI just like let them leave with all yeah. the in- no, the guy in De- the the mob guy in Detroit, Sam Finanza, that's absolutely true. He ran a place called the Rex Bargain Store that dealt in secondhand merchandise. That's absolutely true. And and Bellastri, like his only role in this was identifying a business that was going to be going up for sale. That was all he did. But that was that was enough. They were able to be like, okay, here's a business that's buying and selling electronics and things of value, and it's the right time to move in because right now it's like being run by this guy's widow who, you know, she just wants to get rid of it. She doesn't want to run this store. So, like, his role is very minor, but... But it's really interesting that 
all they had, if they all they were really after was was inventory for their store. They could have done it. They, I mean, the amount of stuff they took out of Milwaukee that would have been <laughs> enough inventory for their store for probably ten years. Sure, you know, yeah, and they could have just. I mean, it just seems weird. Why? Why do it at such a grand scale? Yeah. Well, and okay, I should I should be clear. I think I probably forgot to mention this at some point. The real problem with this, I think the version that I've told here is more or less accurate. The problem is when the FBI was going around and talking to people, it was really hard to tell who was telling the truth and who wasn't. Like some guys were obviously lying, Mm -hmm. but then there were other guys who I couldn't tell if they were lying or not. And so I kind of pieced together off the stuff that I could I could tell for absolutely for sure. But you've got the two guys in Milwaukee who I'm 99% sure are full of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't believe this story that they were going to order a million dollars of merchandise and then sell it and then pay back the credit. That, that doesn't make any sense. I would agree. But then you got the second guys in Detroit and Cleveland. And I don't think they're as shady, but I still got the impression that the version that they were telling the FBI was not accurate. Mm-hmm. So trying to figure out exactly what happened was kind of hard to tell. The best you could do was like the truck driver, I could tell, like he's not making stuff up. Yeah. He's just some guy that got hired to transport stuff. So he's not going to make up a story. So that part you could tell. But but yeah, like trying to actually piece out like who's doing what, who's getting paid, who's not getting paid. They're all faking receipts and paperwork. Yeah. I mean, they're using fake business names. I have no idea. So what the details are are a little fuzzy, but the bottom line is it worked in that the some of the merchandise got where it was supposed supposed to go. go. And they got away without having to pay for it or getting arrested for it. Do you know was it was it a vast majority of the inventory that they ended up? I have no idea. No. Okay. I have no idea because they didn't get caught. So it's it's not like the government came in and and inventoried it. Right, but I but I guess what what I was thinking is we know that there's this big pile of inventory. What ended up in Canada? Because we we know that something ended up in Canada, right? Right. Then the guy in Detroit that was not mafia associated, right? He right. also ended up with some. And right. then the guy in Cleveland did. Well, I'll tell you two things to that. One, the FBI apparently is pretty laid back if you show them a receipt. <laughs> because <laughs> because there's other businesses that like from Detroit and Cleveland, they were sending into other places in New York and other cities. And these guys would be like, here – Here's a, and I, they might have been legitimate sales, but either way, once they were like, look, I have this receipt, the FBI kind of backed off of them. And even though the stuff was originally more or less stolen, if it looked like you bought it legitimately, they, they left did. you alone. So it could be that all those places that were just kind of left alone were kind of part of it. And I don't think most of them had any idea that anything was wrong. Some of them, I think, had a hint because the deals were very good. Good, yeah. <laughs> but um but yeah, trying to trying to work it out. So here's the other thing. So like when they were running all this all the numbers and like I said, it got up to seven hundred thousand dollars that the creditors were owed and it was thirteen hundred different businesses. In the FBI file, there are probably not all, but many of these invoices. And I'm gonna tell you 
I didn't do that work. <laughs> uh, so I'm sorry to the listeners who want to know like the, the numbers on this. I did not independently verify the invoices against anything. The Milwaukee Mafia podcast needs an accountant. No. That, that we can just dump all the invoices no. on. No. Like, when I'm certain, Get us the numbers for this. So. No. Like, FBI... If people don't know this, if it isn't clear, FBI files are sent to me as, as PDFs. And when I get to, like, you know, dozens of pages of invoice, <laughs> like, Xeroxes, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to kind of scan, scan through, through this. this. <laughs> I'm not worried about oh we sent you 15 stereos for this amount like i don't care that's way more detail than i need but the point is though there is a lot of people out there that bought inventory probably paid for it because they had a receipt and were just left out kind of left out of the story so they probably so these detroit mobster guys probably made a nice bank yeah, like I said, if people are that interested, like the the rough version of this story is 14 pages long. And it's on the website. It's on MilwaukeeMafia.com. You can see it there. But yeah, I mean, I cut out anything about that with the the places that Detroit and Cleveland sold to that I am under the impression that those were more or less legitimate sales, or at least the people thought they were legitimate. I left that out of the story because – you don't need to know every single person who bought, bought something. something like yeah. that's way more detail than you need. So yeah, sorry, sorry yeah. that that was kind of confusing. I did the best I could to boil it down, but I, I think it's funny that it's a bankruptcy story, but it really didn't have that much to do with bankruptcy. Here, I was thinking you were gonna tell a story about how the mafia was like faking bankruptcies and somehow siphoning money through it, which I guess no. this kind of is what they did here, but I. No, I mean, later we'll talk about mortgage scams. They did some mortgage scams, too. But no, like, it's bankruptcy in the effect that they ranked up this major, major debt, had to declare bankruptcy, but they still got away with the merchandise and never had to pay back the creditors. The original people who they bought all this stuff wholesale, those guys didn't see, like, pretty much anything from this. The other thing I find find interesting about this is that secondhand wholesalers, that's Weird thing to me. Well, not necessarily secondhand wholesalers. So yeah, a lot of this was probably legitimate, like real, yeah, new inventory, and they were just pawn, basically selling it off to pawn shops. Yeah, okay. um, like I, I shouldn't say like secondhand stores. It'd be more like liquidation stores. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't know if this is off topic for people listening, but. Like when I was growing up, I don't know if you ever went there, but there used to be a store called D and D Liquidators. Yeah. Okay. Oh, totally. Yeah, and like that's the kind of place, place we're talking about here. Okay. Is it's a place where they have you know hundreds of the same item because whatever store they got it from didn't want it when anymore. They, yeah, exactly. Cool. All right. Well, I think that wraps this one up. You got anything else? No, I think that's pretty good. Hopefully, hopefully people followed that. Okay, I'm really. I tried my best. I really did. <laughs> so it was hopefully. a tough one to make sense. Of, it was, so. and, I, and I and I think I can more or less promise that that's not going to happen again. I think moving forward, things are going to be pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, we don't have a whole lot of mob stories that involve paperwork like this. Cool, man. All right. Well, as normal, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review um, on your favorite podcast app. And Gavin, you want to hit them up with your contact information yeah i feel free to email me milwaukee mafia gmail.com 
As I've said a couple times already, go to MilwaukeeMafia.com or its sister site, GavinSchmidt.com. But for this stuff, MilwaukeeMafia.com will get you there faster. Uh, You can find me on Facebook. Um, Technically on Twitter, although that's not Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Yeah, just don't. (laughs) Just don't. So, yeah, pretty easy to find. And and if you want to find Eric, uh, you got to go through me. So Yep. Yeah. (laughs) I live off the grid. Yeah. So, all right. And we will, well, also just a reminder to everybody that there is a Patreon, which gets you access to bonus, bonus content. So please go check that out. Go to MilwaukeeMafia.com. There's a big banner there that says support us on Patreon. And we will be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks everybody for tuning in. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.